I want to make reference to an article that I saw recently. I actually couldn't believe my eyes. I thought for sure the man was joking. I read it. I thought it was satire, but it's not a satire piece. And this is, I can't afford this here. This is what the article was titled. I'm a Presbyterian minister who doesn't believe in God. And as I read this article, he's, he's casting himself as a new kind of minister. And this is what he had to say. I think of Christianity as a culture. It has produced 2,000 years of artifacts, literature, music, art, ethics, architecture, and yes, beliefs. But cultural cultures evolve, and Christianity will have to adapt in order to survive in the modern era. Many of those paths will be dead ends. I believe one of the newer religious paths could be a beliefless Christianity. In this sect, one is not required to believe things, but what about belief in God? Can a beliefless Christianity really survive if God isn't in the picture? Can you even call that Christianity anymore? In theory, yes. Some quipped that my congregation is BYOG, bring your own God. I use that and invite people to bring their own God, or none at all. While the symbol God is part of our cultural tradition, you can take it or leave it, or redefine it to your liking. That permission to be his theological do-it-yourselfers is at the heart of beliefless Christianity. I wonder what you think as you hear this minister profess a beliefless Christianity. If, if you were having a conversation with him, what kind of questions might you want to ask him? What kind of things might you want to say? And let me just ask you this. With what you know about Jesus, what do you think Jesus might want to say to this individual? He certainly captures the spirit of our age, doesn't he? To be a do-it-yourselfer when it comes to thinking about big questions. As I read this article, I really struggled. I wanted to say to this man, you can do that, but, but don't call yourself a minister of the gospel of Jesus. But he says in this article, quote, I don't appreciate being told that I'm not truly a Christian. And as I saw that, I thought, the word Christian means something. It was first used of the early followers of Jesus, these disciples who not only received the good news that Jesus came to die for our sins, to bring us into reconciliation with God, but they followed Jesus in a new way of being human. And they sought to believe the very things that Jesus himself taught. And so here's a key thought as we get ready to open the scriptures today. Jesus doesn't shy away from offending people if that means awakening them to the reality of God, sin, salvation, and the world to come. He interrupts do-it-yourself spirituality and has the audacity to place himself at the very center of our lives. So as we get ready to look at this passage in the Gospel of Luke, I just want to give you a heads up. This is another one of those so-called hard sayings of Jesus. And they're hard because it kind of goes against the grain of the way we normally think or, or maybe even want to think. And so we're going to call today, today's study Salvation's Narrow Door. And we're going to call it this because Jesus is going to urge people to enter in 
through the narrow door. So as we get ready to look at this ancient passage of scripture, let me invite us just to pause for a moment and pray and to ask the Lord to be the one who teaches us this day. Let's pray. Lord, as we listen to what this individual has just said about a beliefless Christianity and the impulse to be a do-it-yourself spirituality person, we understand, Lord, that this is kind of the cultural air that we breathe. And at the same time, we know that Jesus has some very definitive things to say. So help us hear what he has to say. Whether we come in here today not yet believing, just wanting to explore what Jesus has to say, or whether we come in here today as a convinced follower and eager to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. If we come in here this day discouraged or cynical or jaded, or whether we come in here just needing to be encouraged, would you meet us, we pray. Help us to understand what Jesus says in these ancient words that we get the privilege of seeing and hearing this day. And help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up at verse 22. And this is what Luke, the physician, has to say. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What an interesting question. If you could ask Jesus one question, would this be the question that you would ask him? For someone in the crowd that was following Jesus as he was making his way down to Jerusalem, this is at the forefront of their minds. And we're not exactly sure why this question is being asked, but it was being asked. And maybe he was thinking like many Jews of the day thought. For example, there's a collection of oral traditions and sayings called the Mishnah. And in one particular place, this is not in the scripture, this is outside the scripture, but in one particular place, Sanhedrin chapter 10, it contains these words. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. All Israelites, that is all those who descend from Abraham, have a share in the world to come. And so when we hear someone asking the question, Lord, are there few who will be saved? They're not so much asking what we typically think, when I die, will I go to heaven? They're asking something much more specific. Will I be, or will there be few people who enter into that new creation that Jesus called the kingdom of God? You see, they're inhabiting this story about a good, beautiful creation that has been ruined by the um, rebellion of humanity. But the promise of God is that there is a new creation coming. And so they didn't know exactly how that step would take place. They knew somehow God would come to them in a particular fashion. And so Jesus basically inserts himself in that place where they aren't really understanding how it's going to take place. And so, but I think there might be a, a, a clue here to help us understand. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. So put yourself in the mindset of people in that day. If Jesus is the Messiah, we know what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem He's going to start a war with Rome, defeat Rome, and set up Jerusalem once again as the center of the kingdom of God. So in asking this question, Lord, will those um, who are saved be few? And probably asking about these people who are oppressing them. Because Jesus has been saying some weird things like, love your neighbor. Forgive those who have harmed you. 
And so surely that wouldn't extend to Rome, would it? So Lord, will those who are saved be few? And as we listen to that question, let's just put it in our minds. Jesus, is it possible for me to enter the kingdom of God? That's not exactly the question that's being asked there. But for our sake, let's put that in the back of our mind. And so Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. <laughs> he, he actually gives an instruction and then follows it up with a quick story. But the Lord said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, that word strive, if we were to be experts in Greek and could analyze it, is a Greek word that sounds an awful lot like, an awful lot like agonize. It simply means to endeavor with strenuous zeal. In other words, this is a word that is used in competitions. Like if you're boxing or entering a race, you would use all your might to seek to win. Now, Jesus isn't talking about salvation being a competition that you win, but he is using that word to catch people's attention. So Jesus is saying, is saying in many ways, the door to the kingdom of God is standing open before you. Focus your attention and energy on entering the narrow door now. I love what one commentator said. Jesus refuses to allow this to be a matter of curiosity, but makes it a matter of urgency. Lord, are there few who will be saved? And Jesus responds, basically saying, this can't be an issue of mere curiosity, but rather of urgency. Strive to enter through the narrow door. And that narrow door is basically standing right before them. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Aren't those amazing words? If I came in here on a Sunday morning and just said to you all, I want you to know that I'm the door to heaven, and if you enter through me, God will accept you. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, who says this, right? But Jesus himself said this very thing. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In another place, Jesus says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, whether or not you actually believe what Jesus is saying here, can you appreciate what he's pressing home to people? I mean, he could be crazy. But can you appreciate the fact that he is being crystal clear with people? And someone says, this is what I don't like about Christianity. It's too exclusive. I believe any sincerely good person can find salvation. Maybe you've heard something similar. Maybe you've wrestled with this yourself. But if we listen to this objection, what do you see maybe as the fatal flaw? May I suggest to you it's found in the notion that any sincerely good person can find salvation. That itself is exclusive, is it not? What about those of us who've messed up? What about those of us who, if truth be told, are not that sincere 
At least we haven't been towards God. What kind of hope is there for us? I love the way that Tim Keller explains it. A pastor in New York City who's written a number of different books that have, I've, I've found very helpful, writes this. It sounds very open-minded to say, I believe that any good person can find God, not just Christians. But what is the premise? That the good can find God and the bad do not. That's very exclusive, very. He goes on to say, if you don't have to believe in Jesus to find God, then good works are enough. And if good works are enough, then God accepts people through performance. Everyone knows that somewhere there is a cutoff point for moral performance or goodness of heart, etc. But that is quite exclusive. Do you see what Tim Keller is saying? If you believe that any sincerely good person can find salvation, you're saying that there's a standard. Sincerity and goodness. And that notion actually is at the heart of every religion and every do-it-yourself spirituality. All the great religions of the world and all the do-it-yourself spiritualities of mankind embrace moralism with the only exception being Jesus. We all, by nature, have this notion of karma. What you put out will come back to you. And if you put out good, it will come back to you. And if you put out bad, well, that's just too bad. But Jesus is different. He doesn't say only the good can enter. He says anyone who wants to enter has to come through me. And the reason for that is because there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. This is a passage the Apostle Paul quotes, and it's found originally in the book of Psalms. This is the testimony of Scripture. No one by nature is good. No one does enough good. And actually, no one by nature seeks God. And that's why we have to understand what Jesus has to say. Because if we miss this, we completely miss the salvation Jesus is talking about. So he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house is risen and shuts the door, and you will begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you are from. This is a stark illustration Jesus is using. He tells them to strive to enter through the narrow door. But he says there will come a time when that door will close. And what we know from the scriptures and from the teaching of Jesus, that comes at the renewal of all things. When Jesus comes to set this world to right, that door will be closed. Here's a key thought. If folks are asked... If heaven exists, would you want to go there? Many would undoubtedly say yes. But if you were to say, Jesus says you must turn from living for yourself and turn to God, many will respond, um, no thanks. I prefer my own do-it-yourself spirituality. And so we find those words of Jesus constricting and maybe even offensive. And let me just say it was no less offensive and constricting in that day. But Jesus isn't worried about offending us. He's worried about awakening us. 
Because if what Jesus says is true, it makes all the difference in the world. That's why he tells people, strive to enter through that narrow door. He continues in verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Those people listening to the original words of Jesus would have been shocked. Because in their mind, the workers of evil are all those nations outside of Israel. Israel was the hope of the world. Those nations out there, they're the ones who are dirty. They're the ones who are sinful. They need us. And so when Jesus says, you can't just say you hung out with me, that you were in my presence, that you heard me teach, that's not enough. I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Again, Ralph Davis in his commentary says, familiarity with Jesus is not the same as having a place in the kingdom of God. No wonder Jesus tells his audience, and no wonder we hear him speaking through the centuries, strive to enter through the narrow door. There is a way. Jesus is that way. And he continues in verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Again, I want to suggest that we can't understand how shocking this would have been for the people who had the blood of Abraham in their veins to hear Jesus say, you're going to see Abraham and the other patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. We don't have categories to understand how offensive that would have been. But again, Jesus isn't worried about offending. He's worried about awakening people and getting them to enter in through the narrow door. To understand that day that will come as the kingdom of God being established is a picture of that day when all those who cause harm and live for themselves are banished from causing more harm. That is to understand what Jesus is saying. So for these people who want to be in the kingdom, but don't want to follow the way of Jesus in peace, Jesus has the audacity to tell them, you may find yourselves cast out. And then he says in verse 29, and people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, I'm sorry, and some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. What is Jesus saying here? He's telling the people of his day, respond to me. Because there is a day coming when the gospel is going to break out into this world. And those people that you think are the workers of evil are the ones who will be coming from all four corners of the world and will find themselves at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying they're better. He's not saying that even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or the prophets were better. He's telling everyone, it is urgent to respond to me, to believe the good news that I'm telling you, to see the door that is open right before you, and to enter the kingdom of God through me. 
So that original question, Lord, are there few who will be saved? I think has an interesting answer. A lot fewer than one would expect, but far, far more than one would imagine. How's that possible? Because those who think by virtue of their heritage, their good works, that surely God would accept them into his presence, Jesus says, will find themselves apart from the presence of God. And those who just simply respond to the gospel invitation will find themselves among a host of people who will, find, who will be at the, that kingdom of God. The gospel writer John tells us this in the opening of his biography about Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How tragic that Jesus came to his own people. How tragic it is that he told people about the great love of God and how God was coming to them now, even in his person, in his ministry, calling them to turn from living for themselves calling them away from their desires of national supremacy and, and war against Rome to follow the way of peace. And yet they did not respond. In fact, after the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus commissioned his disciples upon his resurrection to go and to preach the gospel. And he told them, go back into Jerusalem. Those very ones who crucified me and offer the gospel to them first. Give them another opportunity to turn back to me. And some did. But some wanted nothing to do. And so the gospel went to the nations. And we're told in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, from the Apostle John, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you catch what John saw? People from every nation, from the four corners of the world, there in the kingdom of God, declaring at the top of their voices that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Are there few who will be saved? That depends on who responds. And so why does Jesus tell us these words? Why does Luke take time to make sure that his original audience and whoever would come across his gospel hear about this episode in the life of Jesus? He's writing so that you and I can have certainty about Jesus. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He told us things about what Mary, the mother of Jesus, was thinking in her heart. He got firsthand testimony about Jesus, and he compiled this in his gospel so you and I can understand who Jesus is and to even hear some of these hard words of Jesus. And so if I can bottom line it for us, I think it goes something like this. Because Jesus is salvation's door. His invitation we can't ignore. 
This is what Luke is wanting to stress to us and presenting us this person of Jesus. Because Jesus is salvation's door, his invitation we can't ignore. So just two points of application this day. Enter through the narrow door. How tragic it would be if we, who have the privilege of hearing these words of Jesus, just left this place saying, oh, isn't that interesting? And we don't take him up on the offer to enter in through him. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I remember as a as an early follower of Jesus, hearing these words and understanding that, that what I earn from the things that I've done wrong in my life is like a wage. And that wage is death. It's, it's separation from God. That's what, I, that's what I earn. That's what's coming to me naturally. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says basically to whoever hears It doesn't matter what you have done. There is forgiveness available, full and free. So come to me. Enter in through me. There's a wonderful classic hymn called Come Ye Sinners. And it opens kind of in a way that jars us, but it ends beautifully. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, joined with power. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. What beautiful words of poetry. What forceful words of truth. Come ye weary. Come ye sinners. Come ye who are lost by the fall. The Apostle Paul is one such person who responded to the good news of Jesus. If you remember the story of Paul, he was one time a Pharisee. And he was a part of that group of people who sought to have Jesus put to death. And in fact, when his followers started running around saying, we've seen the resurrected Lord, and they called people to faith and allegiance in him, it made him furious. And he actually oversaw the first execution of a follower of Jesus. And he was on his way, wrecking havoc in the church of Jesus, going around to gatherings like our own, and disrupting them, and arresting people, and having them thrown in jail. He was angry, and he thought he was doing the will of God. And yet, Jesus, in his grace, comes to him and appears to him and not only forgives him, but commissions him to be his own right-hand man to the Roman Empire. And towards the end of his life, he would write a letter to his young protege in the faith named Timothy. And he said this. Actually, I'm in Galatians first, and then I'm going to go to Timothy. In Galatians, he tells us, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I have violently persecuted the church of God, And tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Here he tells us that he was excelling in the way that he thought was right. He was peerless 
when it came to righteousness. He violently persecuted the church of God. And then he would write this to his young protege in the faith. For even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here? He's saying, look, I had a track record that I'm ashamed of. But Jesus had mercy on me. And the reason he had mercy on me was so that he could use me as a display of his grace. That if the worst of sinners can find grace and forgiveness and welcome by Jesus, then surely I can as well. See, my friends, that's why we say the gospel is good news. It's breaking news that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life, may be saved, may enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what your background is. You may have been raised in a Christian family or a Muslim family or a Sikh family or a Jewish family. It doesn't matter. Jesus says to one and to all, come to me to find life, to find forgiveness, to find welcome in the kingdom of God. See, the reason why Jesus is able to make an offer like this is because he takes responsibility for our sins. The scriptures tell us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, when we trust in Jesus, our sins are given to him. And what he did some 2,000 years ago is sufficient forever to cast those sins as far as the east is from the west and to bring us into a state of relationship with God. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's a favorite of many people who follow Jesus. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. So friends, because Jesus is salvation's door, his invitation we can't ignore. If you have not received Jesus into your own life, if you've not believed in him for the forgiveness of sins, what are you waiting for? Jesus ready stands to save you. So that's the first point of application. <laughs> Strive to enter through that narrow door. Here's the second point of application. Let's find the courage to follow Jesus. And I have in mind particularly following Jesus in everything that he teaches us, including on this point that he is salvation's narrow door. The gospel is beautifully summarized for us in, in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, might not perish, but have eternal life. The question I have is, can we stay faithful to this basic message of the gospel of Jesus? I say that 
because I know the cultural pressure that those of us who follow Jesus are under. If ministers of the gospel of Jesus are compromising on this, it's easy for us to do so as well. The Apostle John said this, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, it should say. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. My friends, as followers of Jesus, can we stay faithful on this point? Can we find the courage to be able to tell people that Jesus is the door to salvation? He doesn't give you bits of advice or ways to improve your life so that you can make yourself more presentable to God and maybe one day Find salvation. <laughs> Jesus is salvation. And someone says, I still don't like the idea of there being only one door to heaven. I know this is a tough point to embrace. And I would say, if Jesus didn't say this, don't embrace it. <laughs> if one of the things you struggle with is Christians who say that Jesus is the only way to God, I understand why you would struggle with this. But when you hear Christians say this, I think I can say the best intention of those of us who say something like that is not to be jerks. It's not because we're trying to make people mad at us. It's because we're seeking to be faithful to what Jesus said so that people can find salvation in him. And so the question really, at the end of the day, is not why did God provide one door to come through? but why wouldn't you go through that door? Let me put it this way. Let's suppose God provided 10 doors for us to go through. What do you think the objection might be? Well, why aren't there 11? What if God provided 100 doors to go through and said, these are the doors to go through to enter my kingdom? What would the objection be? I don't like there's not 101 doors. My friends, we shouldn't wrestle with the fact that Jesus is the door. That he tells people to strive to enter heaven through him. We should marvel that there is actually a door. That God has provided a certain way for people like you and me to be reconciled to God. And so let's take Jesus at his word when he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And let's be faithful to Jesus on that. Let me just ask it a slightly different way. Is Jesus crazy? I mean, if I said what Jesus said, you would be right to call me crazy. But is he crazy? He doesn't strike me as a person who's crazy. He says such beautiful things. He was such an amazing person. Billions of people through history have found in Jesus life and welcome before the Father. It's really hard for us to write Jesus off as crazy. But maybe he was just lying. Maybe he knew he wasn't the door to heaven, but he just thought it would be kind of fun to see if he could fool a bunch of people on that. I don't know many people who really want to go down that path. 
The one who taught us not to lie, himself being a liar. The one who knowingly went to the cross to take on the sins of the world. Lying about that. I think that leaves us one option. Jesus is telling us the truth. And it may be offensive. And that's okay. Because if it's true, we hope (laughs) that Jesus would risk offending us to bring us into his presence. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if Jesus wasn't ashamed of the gospel and the early followers of Jesus weren't ashamed of the gospel, then we shouldn't be as well because it is the power of God for people just like you and just like me to find that salvation. Bono was giving an interview one time and he could have towed the cultural line about Jesus, but he didn't. He stayed faithful, and this is what he said. He said, the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back on you. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Love interrupts, he says, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. The interviewer said, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe that. Then Bono, he could have just said, well, just take your own path. Construct your own do-it-yourself spirituality. I'm sure that whatever way you choose will be good. That was an option for him, but he doesn't. He didn't do that. He he drove it home. He said the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out does not come back to us. It's not our good works that get us through the gates of heaven. So my friends, because Jesus is salvation's door, his invitation we can't ignore. So Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people who have passed through salvation's door And may you never be ashamed of his gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.